Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult series. Be sure to visit primed.com podcast after the discussion for more information about today's article and to claim CME-CE credit. FL is a 62-year-old male with type 2 diabetes, and when he comes in today, he tells you, looking down at the floor, I've not been taking my insulin like I'm supposed to. I just can't afford it. He states his costs out of pocket have skyrocketed, with his long-acting insulin costing almost $700 a vial. What can you do to what can you do to effectively care for FL and help save him money? Hi, this is Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and joining me today to discuss the high cost of insulin and care of type 2 diabetes is Alan Ehrlich, associate professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and senior editor at Dynamed. Alan, thanks for coming. Thanks, Frank. Listen, Frank, this has been all over the news. Various insurance companies are saying uh, they're going to provide certain discounts for certain patients. What's up with the cost of insulin? Why, why is it so expensive? So I- insulin's cost is, is a really interesting story, and it's very complicated. Um, we all learned in our, early in our medical training about the story of Banting and Best, and they, they discovered insulin using dogs. Um, when they actually patented the drug insulin, they sold the patent to the University of Toronto for a dollar a single U.S. dollar, stating that they wanted this life-saving therapy to be available worldwide without it being a cost issue. Um, The University of Toronto then subleased out this patent, and um, pharmaceutical companies started taking the patent and making biosimilar agents and renewing them and improving upon them every couple of years so that, in essence, available insulin has always had a cutting-edge agent or agents, and those agents are non-generic. And so drugs can be priced whatever the drug company wants to make people pay. And so insulin's gone up in particular over the last 10 to 15 years, in part because pharmacy benefit management companies have participated in an unusual payment system that allows them to raise the price to the consumer while at the same time making a great deal of money for themselves and the pharmaceutical industry. Those uh, benefit management companies are supposed to, uh, their role is to save money, isn't it? Yes, that was how they were initially envisioned. And you and I actually sat on one that took care of Medicaid patients for many years. Their goal was to help the consumer save money, but they realized that money was better made by playing this middleman role than helping consumers save money. Uh, So... Uh, There's a host of reasons, both political and economic, that have gone into this. Nonetheless, our patients are getting overwhelmed with the cost of, in particular, long-acting basal insulin. So you mentioned that there are, you know, always new ones coming out, and certainly there's a range of insulins that can be prescribed. How much do they differ in terms of their efficacy? 
especially okay. the long-acting ones. So it, it's a great question. We, we moved to that once-a-day basal insulin because we felt like everyone has a certain degree of insulin in their system at all times, and this sort of was most physiologic. And, and once-a-day long-acting basal insulin has become a mainstay of care. The ADA and other organizations have supported their use, and they are very effective at keeping a low level of insulin in your system at all times. How effective are they as they compare to other shorter-acting agents? Well, uh, you don't really compare a basal insulin to regular insulin just because the regular has very short onset. But when you compare one dose a day of long-acting basal insulin to something like NPH divided over the course of the day into two injections, they're equally effective at controlling um, A1C levels. And um, interestingly, this recent paper in JAMA demonstrated that they are equally effective um, ha at having relatively low risks of adverse events, in particular hypoglycemia. Well, that's great because that's obviously one of the big concerns anytime we're using insulin. But does switching to NPH really save money? All right, well, this is the interesting thing. So I, I was frustrated with, with my patient FL, and I contacted one of my local endocrinologists, and I said, do you have any advice? And he said, sure. Just send your patient over to this large discount store that's around the country um, and ask them to pick up NPH instead of their basal insulin and just divide the dose, and they'll do fine. And it, it controls their A1C equally well. It has very low risks of adverse effects. And the cost of, of FL's vial was almost $700 a month out of pocket, whereas the cost of the NPH at this national chain was $25 a month for a vial. That's a huge difference. It's almost one month versus a year's worth of the cost. Exactly. Uh, it, that's exactly right. It's, it's an enormous savings. Uh, it does require the patient to give themselves two shots a day, and um, so some patients might find that annoying. Um, but when you offer them that, that option of, well, pay this or pay that, my suspicion is most people will be willing to give themselves a second shot a day, knowing that they're saving themselves close to um, $8,000 a year. Yeah, that, that's pretty dramatic. The next question that would come up is, well, okay, if I want to do this and my patient is on one version of insulin and I want to put them on another, in this case, let's say NPH, how do I make that switch? Well, it, it's interesting. The medical literature has looked at the opposite because we had NPH first, we had regular first, then we had... NPH, a, a longer-acting insulin, and then we had this long-acting basal insulin, and there's a fair amount of data on how to effectively switch from NPH to basal insulin, but there isn't as much data on how to effectively make the switch back. The current recommendations are to take your basal dose and multiply it by 0.8, so take 80% of your basal dose and then split it. My endocrinologist friend recommended taking 75% of that dose in the morning and 25% with your evening meal. Um, others have recommended just split it 50-50 and watch for patient's symptoms. Watch the, for hypoglycemia, watch for hyperglycemia, and, 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 and follow what happens. I, um, on my patient, I moved him to 80% of his basal dose, 75 in the morning, 25 at night. He's had almost no change in his pre-meal fasting, uh, his pre-meal um, glucose measurements, and he's done great. Well, to me, it makes sense to go with that 80% rule you suggested, just because whenever you're making a change in medication, at least in my experience with my patients, 
the most important thing is to avoid adverse events. If you make a change and the patient then has the hypoglycemic spell, then they're going to attribute it not to the dose that you use, but to the drug itself, and you may wind up shooting, shooting yourself in the foot. So I, I couldn't agree more. I think um, especially those of us in primary care, when we're making changes like this, we tend to be more conservative. And we have really good data. Um, it's interesting because um, the ADA and a whole host of other organizations have now moved our A1C goal from that below seven to now eight or below. And so I think when we keep that level in mind, especially for patients who've had type two diabetes for years, choosing a goal of eight is not unreasonable and making a change like this more conservatively and then gradually increasing it if we're concerned is a much safer approach to how we, 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 we transition patients. You know, the, uh, the final question I have for you, Frank, is that this whole discussion about the cost of insulin always gets me to think about, well, should we really be using insulin in these type 2 diabetics anyhow, given that it's somewhat of a mixed blessing? Obviously, it helps with glycemic control, but it can be associated with a lot of adverse events. Well, I, I think I have the very same concern, and I will be honest with you. I have not started a patient on basal insulin or NPH insulin in probably over 10 years. I've become very conservative with A1C management, and we have such great other drugs right now. We have the SGLT2 inhibitors that not only help control A1C, but help patients lose weight and may lower their cardiovascular risks. We have uh, GLP-1 agonists. It's another injectable. And yes, so, so that's maybe a little bit of a hurdle. Its adverse effects, including nausea, are probably why it's effective. But these are much better, at, these are much safer at controlling A1C levels and improving patient outcomes. Patient, patients sometimes, and providers too, have some concerns about the risk for um, gangrene and amputation with SGLT2 inhibitors, but that's a very rare occurrence, whereas hypoglycemia, weight gain, and worsening of type 2 diabetes is seen far more commonly with things like insulin. I agree. Finally, I would note those last two classes that you mentioned, they're not cheap either, though. They're not cheap either. That's true, but they're not $700 that's a month, true. which is wonderful. Well, Alan, thanks so much for, for discussing this with me. Thanks, Frank. Practice pointer. Consider moving your patients with type 2 diabetes who are on long-acting basal insulin to NPH insulin twice a day to have equivalent A1C management as well as equivalent low risk of hypoglycemia. Join us next time when we talk about breast size and its influence on healthcare and individual approaches towards exercise. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primemed.com slash podcast and see you next week.